Welcome to the Young Mormon Feminist Podcast. I am your host, Julia. Young people in America as a whole are becoming less and less religious and tend to be leaving organized religion. The LDS Church seems to be no exception. But does the church still have something to offer young people? This was the topic of a Sunstone Symposium panel discussion called What the Church Has to Offer Youth. I was fortunate to be on this panel along with three other young Mormon feminists, and I've invited two of them on today to talk about it more. With me is Tanisha. She is a senior at BYU studying French and sociology. Welcome. Hi. I also have Emma. She is a senior in high school this fall. Thank you for joining us, Emma. Hi. So less than a week ago, we spoke together about what the church can offer youth, and each of you shared um, personal experiences about what the church provided you, but also where you think the church can improve. One of the things I noticed you focus mostly on the culture of the church as opposed to the religious aspects of the church. Why do you think the culture of the church is so important? Um, Speaking for me personally, I think that the culture of the church is so important because as much as I think that we like to ignore it, I know in my singles ward often my, my bishop says, no, the culture is not important. It is important. And it's a huge part of, of being LDS. I didn't realize how much of the culture was was part of being LDS until I, I started making more non-Mormon friends when I came back from BYU. So I do... I do think that that's a huge part, and I think that that's probably the most problematic aspect of the church, one of them, along with, with some of the doctrinal um, things. But I really do think that the culture is, is huge, especially for youth. Mm-hmm. For me, I feel like separating the doctrine and the church is pretty possible in your own mind. Like, you know, you can definitely believe what you want to believe and it doesn't become a huge issue in terms of the actual doctrine because, you know, no one really knows what you believe. No one can judge what you believe. But if you're going to call yourself Mormon, you're accepting the culture and you're saying you're part of the culture, which is why it's such a big deal, especially to me, because saying that I am Mormon means that I'm accepting this culture and I'm accepting this culture that is flawed in a lot of ways. So, like, the culture is the experience of Mormonism more than the doctrine is because, Doctrine is something that's very personal and that you can work out for yourself, but the culture is a group experience and a lived experience more than anything else. Well put. Well, and I also think that the culture is a little bit more malleable than Mm -hmm. the doctrine is. So obviously that, you know, there's doctrine that is, you know, put down in scripture and, and taught to us by leaders. And then the culture is a lot more local, um, Mm -hmm. In nature, and even though the culture may be similar from congregation to congregation and experience to experience, it can be. It seems to me that it can be um, manipulated and improved on a local level for better or for worse. Yeah, absolutely. I agree, definitely. So, just kind of an overview. What do you think if you were to pick your top two things? that you think um, the Mormon culture or, or, or doctrine offers youth, what would you pick? I think it offers a really great way to connect. It offers a social, a social life to a lot of people. Um, and, and that was something that I really appreciated growing up 
was that, you know, you can go to church, you have, there's so many activities, and there's a lot of ways to connect with other youth of the same faith. And I think the second thing that I think it offers is I think it offers some sort of stability in the sense that, and I, we talked a little bit about this on the panel, so um, I think you did, Julia, about how you can go anywhere in the world and it's really, the, it's all set up the same. And I think that that's really important. At least for me, I really value stability. So it's really nice to be able to go to certain, some extent and be able to go to another ward somewhere else and be able to sing the, the same hymns or have the same times to go to classes, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So social, the social aspect and then yeah. the, the stability no matter where you go. Yeah. That's great. What do you think, Emma? I definitely second the stability. This is actually kind of like a little bit off topic maybe, but I was in India a month ago and I was able to stay with a host family who was Mormon and I got that opportunity because of the community that Mormonism offers. It's a worldwide network of people who want to help their brothers and sisters in the church and it's a really amazing thing that I think is hard to find in other places in today's world where, you know, everyone's spread out, everyone has their own like little groups and their own like families and communities and circles, but Mormonism has somehow managed to create this like worldwide widespread just group of people who want to help and want to help each other and then the second thing is that I think when the people in Mormonism are really being like the good people that I know most of them are you can create these amazing relationships and friends and family members and just like social groups like Tanisha was saying that really can make a huge impact in your life like good young women's leaders that I've had are going to be my friends for the rest of my life. That's great. And, and I think going off of kind of the idea of stability is that I, th- I think the church can also um, offer youth a direction. So, and, and, and this mm-hmm. is yeah. for better or for worse. <laughs> Obviously yeah. there are downsides <laughs> and upsides to this, but I, I think a lot of times people young people have a hard time understanding where their place is. Um, and everyone has to come to know that for themselves, whether they're in the church or out of the church. Mm-hmm. But I think that the church gives people, if, if, if that's what they want, this, this thing to latch onto and um, to give them some direction, these concrete goals and things to work towards, um, you know, throughout throughout your life. Um, and I think that that can be comforting for a lot of young people. And I think that it can remove one more aspect of stress from, from young people's lives in that, in that regard. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about a few things that we think the church can offer. Now you all shared experiences about your lives and, ways in which the church had great opportunity um, to uh, great opportunity to offer youth and maybe fell a little bit short. Um, and then you also shared uh, some ways that you think that we can help rectify that. And again, this is a lot of cult- culturally based things. But Emma, I'll, I'll let you go first. Um, will you just summarize uh, the experience that you shared? Okay. So in my talk at Sunstone, I shared two experiences from my freshman year. 
so I'll just go through those two. So the first was in October of my freshman year, one of my best friends told me that she was pregnant, and she was in my own class, my Laurel's president, so, or I guess I was my admin at the time, but she was an integral part of my church experience. And so just because of the way my parents had raised me and because, <coughs> sorry, of some individual life experiences, I, my first reaction when she told me she was pregnant was, you know, to give her a hug, to be there for her. But I watched as a lot of my other friends reacted different, differently, and frequently people would cite the for the strength of youth idea of have good friends who share your standards. And that was probably exemplified most at when I tried to go to Mutual with her sometime in December, and our young women's president told her she was no longer allowed to attend Mutual because of the influence she might have on the other youth of the ward. Um, the second experience I had during my freshman year that really changed my perception of the church was my cousin was raped by a stranger at gunpoint in her home. And after that, just a lot of the chastity lessons, a lot of the modesty lessons, especially when that involved like licked cupcakes and chewed pieces of gum, were really deeply hurtful as I thought of my cousin only as strong and brave and as a powerful influence of someone who was a survivor and had overcome hard things. But a lot of the messages I was getting from my religion was that she had lost something that she could never get back because she was suddenly a licked cupcake and she was flawed. And I couldn't kind of make the message that I was getting from my cousin's story and also from my experience I have with my friend with the gospel I believed in of love and the atonement of acceptance of those who are struggling. Um, those are two very... Uh, formative experiences in your life. Mm -hmm. um, how have you come out on the other side? Like, how are you feeling about things? I feel like I hope that people someday have a different story to tell. Because, um, like I said in my Sunstone address, I think that these are becoming more and more common experiences. Experiences that change the way you think of the church. And, you know, obviously not every single 14-year-old is going to go through what I went through. But they probably will go through, you know, a gay uncle, a sibling who leaves the church, parents who get divorced, things that will make them not fit the typical Mormon script. And so I, what I've gotten from my experience is that the church needs to expand its script for what 14-year-old girls and 17-year-old girls and every Mormon woman and person should look like. Because... Our lives don't follow a script, and I hope that in the future for people who are struggling, the church can be a source of comfort and acceptance and love and a sanctuary in times of hardship instead of a place where things get harder and are more painful and that make questions and doubts and struggles worse. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I don't think what you're describing is a unique experience. So what aspect of Mormon culture do you think contributed to... Uh, we'll just take um, with your friend who who was preg who was pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, what aspects of Mormon culture do you think contributed to the reaction um, that she and you experienced, um, and how do you think that those can improve? I think it's the fact that I think a lot of the time, as Mormons, when we're trying to follow the script that the Church has laid down for us, we forget that Christ didn't hang out with other perfect people because Christ was the only perfect person. So as a church of Christ, I think what the church could do better is remember that Christ hung out with lepers and adulteresses and Samaritans, and he spent his ministry healing those who were hurting, and 
helping people who were sinners and who were weak and who were struggling become better and become stronger. And so, I don't know, I think about my friend's experience and I imagine my young woman's president coming to her baby shower with a quilt and my Maya Maids leader buying her a pink onesie and all the other girls in my ward being supportive and being there for her and offering to babysit. And, like, it would be small changes, just small acts of love and acceptance and support that could have made the experience an entirely different thing that would have been faith-affirming rather than led to a faith crisis. Right. So I think there are a couple things at odds, you know, set up here is that, as you said from the Fourth Strength of Youth pamphlet, there is this section talking about choosing good friends. Mm -hmm. And I think as a whole that that's pretty wise advice in terms of choosing people, choose to surround yourself with people who respect you and respect your standards so that you won't um, be asked or pressured to do things that you don't want to do. Um, So how, how do you take that wise advice and apply it to your situation differently than um, the people in your congregation did. I think that what the strength of youth pamphlet is saying, rather than like only associate with people who wear the Mormon girl shorts and have the right beliefs and the right standards is saying that be aware of your standards and don't hang out with people who are trying to make you change those standards. My friend never suggested that I also ought to be a pregnant teenager. That wasn't (laughs) something that was happening, but I think that choosing good friends has a lot more to do with choosing people who uplift you and make you stronger spiritually. And I'm going to honestly say that my friend has done that. She has taught me how to be more loving and more accepting and more kind and more charitable, especially to screaming infants. And for me, being friends with her through this trial and through this struggle has helped me be a better Christian. And so I don't think choosing good friends is all about matching your standards up perfectly to someone else's. But I think it's about remembering your standards, remembering what you care about, and applying that to relationships with other people. That's great. Now, you mentioned um, in your Sunstone address that her boyfriend was also a member of the church. He was in my seminary class, yeah. How did the community react to him? Well, he's been in my seminary class since, And I haven't seen a ton of repercussions for him, which was another, I didn't mention this in my Sunstone address, but that was another really hard thing for me to see is that there was a dramatically different treatment of a teenage girl who had sinned in Mormonism instead of a teenage boy who had made a mistake. And it was treated as just like, oh, he slipped up one time, whereas my friend was kind of banished from our community forever. Hmm. Uh... Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> and, like, you know, he didn't get off scot-free. He had, sure. like, um, this is just from stuff he shared in seminary, which I probably shouldn't go into a lot of detail about. But he did, like, go through a process of, like, healing and talking about things and working through what had gone through. But it wasn't nearly as severe as what my friend went through. Right. Well, and I think that's uh, pretty typical of our societal um, s- slut-shaming. Yeah, where um, women who get pregnant are whores, yeah. and men who get them pregnant made are, one mistake. Right, they're boys. Yeah, boys will be boys. They slipped up. They shouldn't be punished for the rest of their life. Yeah, 
you know, that type of perspective. I think that that's pretty typical and it's something that we as Christians need to rise above. Yeah. That's absolutely. I definitely agree. Um, and then you talked about uh, the the chastity lessons that you had after you found out that your cousin was raped. Mm-hmm. Do you, did any of those lessons delineate uh, like a loss of virtue from rape as opposed to from consensual sex? Dense. I mean, I've never had a young woman's lesson that specifically mentioned the word rape because, frankly, people are afraid of it. But I think that not specifying that, you know, sometimes things happen. Sexual assault is a problem in our society. Rape is a problem in our society. And not saying that causes a problem for any girl whose family member might have gone through this. Or even more problematic, any girl who might have gone through this. Yeah. Because suddenly, like, this was happening at the same time as Elizabeth Elizabeth Smart was speaking out about this, which is why it was so on my mind at the time. But... Elizabeth Smart didn't run away from her attackers because she thought she was a licked cupcake or a chewed piece of gum. And it's such a dangerous and damaging mindset that our church shouldn't be perpetuating and it shouldn't believe in because it's the opposite of what all our gospel and all our doctrine teaches. Right. Well, I think that this is a pretty clear example of where culture diverges from doctrine and really does some damage because I don't think that, well some particular general authorities, books aside, Mm -hmm. um, the doctrine of the church, as I understand it, does not teach that you sin as from being a victim of sexual assault. And I find it really sad that they, that your, in your experience, that was not mentioned. I was a young women's leader for about three years um, when I lived in DC, so about a year ago, it was released. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made sure in every single talk lesson that we had about anything to do with, uh, sex at all is that we clarified that this does not apply to sexual abuse, to rape, to assault. You know, this is, and I probably should have been stronger to talk about consent and, things like that. But I think that's really important. And I hope that that message gets to future leaders. Yeah. And one thing, like one thing that would have made a huge difference for me to hear is that like, this isn't your fault. If you are assaulted, this isn't your, someone's fault if they are raped. And if you are, then you should, I wish that would mention that you should seek help. You should seek justice. You should seek repercussions for whoever is doing this to you because I'm sure that there are girls who have this happening and they're they don't know what to do because suddenly they are a sinner they are wrong they are marred and they're actually just victims of abuse in a society that really just kind of allows it to happen and I think our church should be fighting that rather than encouraging it which it's not necessarily encouraging it but it's allowing for it to become a mindset that a lot of girls in our religion have Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. I was just thinking, when you're talking about that, that I think that there is a huge issue with, especially when I was a youth, the idea of that everything in Mormonism and being a youth and being in young women's is so perfect and shiny and happy, and everyone is perfect and shiny and happy. And if you're not, 
you need to fix that and you need to change your attitude and smile more. And I think that that sort of aligns with that is if, if you are a victim and you're feeling, you know, as you should really upset and scared. And if you have, or if you have depression or anything like that, which is something that is a huge issue with youth in the church, there are a lot of youth with depression, but there's this, this Mormon mindset and within the, the Mormon culture of everything is okay. We're going to be okay. Just keep smiling. Just keep working through it. Everything's okay. And I think that that's a huge issue is just not even acknowledging that there's another, that, that having feelings of fear and resentment or any of, of anger, all of those feelings, those are valid feelings. Um, and being happy is not the only choice. This discussion reminded me of an article that was um, published on July 2nd of this year um, by Pacific Standard Magazine, and it's called For College-Age Mormon, Sexual Violence is a Religious Problem. And it talks about several students at BYU um, who have experienced sexual assault. Um, and it even mentions young Mormon feminists, because I think that the author got some leads from the Young Mormon Feminist Facebook group. Mm-hmm. Um, but it talks about how the church's perspective, how, um, and this is a quote, victims of sexual abuse are not guilty of sexual sin, and the Lord condemns abusive behavior in any form may lead to church discipline. That that's, you know, the standard line. But that that's not being what's, what Mormon women who are sexually assaulted are experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I think this, this, this shows this kind of disconnect between doctrine and culture or doctrine and practice. Unfortunately, a lot of what happens with the church's reaction from a disciplinary level that specifically this article talks about, um, is controlled by priesthood leaders only. So mm-hmm. there's only so much there's only so much that we can do as women to you know, help improve <laughs> this, this situation and how, how people, how young women who talk to their bishops are treated. Yeah. Well, this isn't intended to be a total diatribe on uh, how Mormon culture treat, treats sexual assaults. So let's, move on and talk, Tanisha, about your experiences. Um, You are biracial, and you talked at the symposium about, specifically about what the church can learn from biracial youth. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about your experiences and and what what you concluded? Yeah, so I I am biracial. My, My father is from Africa, and he's black, and my mom is white and from the U.S. And a lot of what I talked about was just feeling like an outsider in the church. And this isn't necessarily just for um, biracial youth, but but also from a lot of youth of color that I've known and that I've spent. Just the general idea of, of feeling like an outsider when you go to church, in the being LDS in general, you feel like an outsider. I sort of talked about some of the privileges that white youth have as opposed to youth of color. And just some of them were, you know, you feel like an outsider rather than, than white youth. And uh, as far as just being racially different, you know that you're different. There are so many people who are not like you. And the other thing that I I mentioned was 
watching seminary movies or the new era. When I grew up, all of the, the covers of the new era and everyone in the new era, they were always white. And I, it's funny because as I, as I talked in my Sunstone presentation, there were a lot of things that I think people don't recognize as being an issue, but when you are that outsider, when you don't fit in in that way, they really make you feel uncomfortable. So I basically just talked about that, and then I talked about how if you're white in the church, those are things that you need to recognize before being able to listen to youth of color and understand a little bit more of their experiences. But as far as what the church can offer, essentially I think that it needs to be a place, a safe place, and it needs to be a place where experiences can be listened to and respected and validated rather than mocked or um, just there needs to be a place where, where youth can feel like they are are welcomed rather than tolerated. And that's how I felt going to my young women's and my Sunday school growing up was that I was tolerated and there were things said about me and I know that they're not just, it wasn't just my ward. And, and so that's kind of what I hope going forward is, is welcoming youth of color into the church because they are really important and it would be an egregious mistake to cut out their voices and shut down that diversity that is in the church. Well, I think what, one thing you said really interesting is that the, they're looked to and appreciated as opposed to just tolerated. Because I think a lot of people listening will say, well, you know, we had um, you know a, a minority in my youth group and we never made fun of them or for it or, you know, we never made fun of their their um, ancestral culture or things like that. And, and that's not as much the point, right? Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And I, and I kind of talked in my Sunstone address, that is an issue in itself, is when sometimes when I talk to people about this, that they jump to that, no, I would never say anything like that. And of course, no one wants to be labeled as that person, and I'm not accusing people of saying that, but that's the issue, is that whether or not that's ever happened... It, whether or not you think that that's ever happened, it has. And I, there's a lot of people that I'm friends with that maybe don't realize that there are things that they have said to me that are very insensitive or um, that they have made me at, at one point feel like an outsider, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Now, you shared an experience about one of your very first mutual um, activities. Will yes. you share that here? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So... I was a beehive. I, I was so excited to go to Mutual for the first time because that's sort of that's the big kid activity. And, and I was growing up and I went to Mutual and we had a hair and makeup activity. And I love hair. I love shopping. I love clothes. I, I love all that kind of stuff. I love makeup. Even, even more excited to attend this Mutual activity. But when I got there, everyone was French braiding hair. And I have very curly hair. And at the time, it was pretty short. It's still pretty short. And there's just no way you can French braid my hair. I've tried. It's a disaster. You just can't do it. And so I remember being really horrified because it was pretty obvious to everyone, sorry, we can't do your hair. And so I'm the only one that, that can't get their hair French braided. So I there was makeup that someone brought. And there was, like, powders and eyeshadows and all of the the makeup, it was like 50 shades of beige. Nothing was even close to my skin tone. 
and the eyeshadows are like bright blues and there was blush that was bright red. It was like, I was going to look like a clown. And I, you know, even at 12, I still sort of, you know, had some kind of makeup sense and I didn't want to do that. And so, so that was, that was something that was really hard because it's not something that anyone necessarily was trying to do that activity so that I wouldn't fit in, but I didn't. And so I had to be, you know, the, the 12 year old girl who's new and kind of sitting in the corner eating, you know, cookies or whatever. And so it wasn't anyone tr- maliciously trying to not include me. And I think that that's important is because I, I feel like that's what people are looking for. Someone saying the N word in class when we think about uh, the way that youth of color are excluded, but something as simple as that was a way that I was excluded and it, and it was hard and I still remember it. Yeah. That's, uh, that sounds like a really othering experience for one of your first mutual activities. Um, how do you think, I, I mean, is it just sensitivity and awareness that you think can help improve these types of things or what, what else do you think can do what you can do? Yeah, I think sensitivity, I think awareness is really important, but I think that, and I, I, I really emphasize this in my sensitive presentation was in general with youth of the church, I think that we just need to listen. And I think that that's especially true for marginalized populations like youth of color in the church. You just need to listen to their experiences. Because there are a lot of times when I wanted to say, hey, this is kind of uncomfortable, or could you not say that? But the repercussions, I didn't want to have to deal with those. And I didn't want to have to deal with someone yelling at me that they weren't racist. Um, I think that that's, that's important. And I think that there were a lot of times when people asked me questions about my race, and I was more than happy to answer those. But it didn't really seem like they were looking for an answer. And this has been my experience at BYU. This has been my experience um, in my home ward was people would ask me questions hoping to be, you know, look for that, that sensitivity and, and want to learn. Well, they, they thought they wanted to learn. But as soon as I gave an answer, it was like, oh, but that's not exactly what I was looking for. So hmm. being willing to accept the answer, even if you don't want to hear it, that, that someone else is going to give to you. So just listening and and taking those um, things and recognizing that, you know, if you're not a youth of color, if you're not a person of color, you may not necessarily completely understand that experience, but, you know, you're there to just offer support. Right. So, Tanisha, one thing that you said, both just now and also at the Sunstone presentation, was that uh, oftentimes feminists... um, feel like they can empathize with you because there is this othering aspect to feminism as well. The example you just mentioned in church, sometimes you want to say something, but you just don't want to deal with the repercussions. I think feminists can relate to that. But um, you said something that I thought was really important, was that we do experience a sense of othering, but if it's not from race, it's not the same thing. Yeah, I did. I did talk about this. And I think that this is something really important in feminism is understanding and looking at intersectionality, um, specifically race intersectionality. And the thing that I, I often see is that, you know, I there is no hierarchy of oppression, but 
it is important to recognize that those things are different. Just like, um, you know, I know that in feminism a lot we talk about um, gay men kind of saying, hey, no, I understand what it's like. You don't. Um, there, there is oppression and there's no hierarchy of that, but it's still different. And the same applies to to race, is that a lot of people will be talking to me and they're like, yeah, no, I totally get it. Like, we're both women and, and I get that. Well, no, because racism is something completely different. And if you're not a person of color, you will not experience that and you won't necessarily completely understand, you won't understand what it's like to be a person of color. But you can understand oppression. It does stem from the same place. But um, I think that's something important, especially within feminism, to recognize that those experiences are different. And um, so white feminists especially need to look at um, and listen to women of color who are speaking and youth of color and, and understand that they don't necessarily, that sexism and racism are not you know, the exact same thing and they don't always have the same repercussions. Well, I can imagine one of the more isolating experiences would be to walk into a room on a regular basis and not see anyone who looks like you. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you talk <laughs> a little bit about that? <laughs> no, that's, uh, I, I mean, I grew up in predominantly white areas. So most of my life has been walking into rooms and knowing that people are, you know, that, that you're different. And I didn't notice it as much until I, I mean, I started getting older and I started realizing it, but I definitely started noticing it when I was at BYU and I saw people looking at me like it was like, oh my goodness, look, it's someone who isn't white. And that's actually a joke that people make constantly here about, oh, if you see someone who's black or biracial, you know, you have to, you, you can't help but stare because you're so surprised that there's someone there. Um, and I mean, there's really, there's about 200 people who are um, listed as black African American at BYU, but it's, yeah, it, there's a lot of times, especially recently about walking into churches or um, going to go to a baptism for the dead and you quickly recognize that you're definitely the only one there and and suddenly you become a represent um representative for all people of color everywhere now that's not really i i I understand that um Mm -hmm. happens frequently but it's not something that you and i can change so right how, how can we make that experience less isolating well, I think that I think that one of the issues really is that the the first thing is as far as as BYU is concerned, or in my home ward, there were other families who were um, I knew other youth of color, and slowly they started not attending. And I I know people of color who have attended BYU who have left because of the way that they were treated here. And so I think that that it you know to a certain extent, it would be a less isolating experience if we weren't cutting those people out and they were leaving. Hmm. So there's that. And, and on a smaller scale, just it's, it's obviously, I don't want anyone to be like ignoring the fact that I'm obviously different because it's important to, to recognize that I am, I am biracial and those things do have an effect on my life. But I, I think it's there's a difference between recognizing that someone's biracial and sort of being obsessed with it 
and taking pictures of me as I'm walking by on campus, you know, so. <laughs> like you're like an exhibit or you're exactly. like a zoo. Exactly. That's awful. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think the church has to offer biracial and minority youth? I think that the church has a wonderful, there's so many resources that the church offers that I think that can really, can really be extended. And I think as far as all youth, the church can offer a place for youth to meet people who are different than them. And I think that that's a huge issue of, you know, uh, Emma talked about this, about there's just one way to be Mormon. And I think that the same applies to, you know, we imagine when we think of Mormon, generally, it's, you know, someone who is white. And so kind of expanding that and giving youth an opportunity to accept diversity and be excited about diversity and and for youth to be able to have resources, to talk about racism, to understand what racism is, and just resources of, of especially like Blacks in the Priesthood, a lot more transparency would be important, too, for youth. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, thank you so much both for your thoughts and sharing your experiences. I um, was honored to be on the panel with both of you at Sunstone, and um, and I appreciate you spending the time with me today to share it with our listeners. Yeah, thank you so much. Absolutely. It was a great experience. <laughs>